If you were here with us last week, we looked at the subject of the persecuted church and being a, being a follower of Jesus in many countries around the world is completely, completely different than what we have here in the U.S. And that last song, thank you, worship team, for that, all the poor and the powerless. As we talked about last week, I think that most of us, if we could just sit down for a few minutes and think about it, very few of us in here, if any, fully knows what it means to historically be a follower of Jesus Christ. To be in the midst of a culture that if they found a bunch of us meeting like this, physical harm, jail sentences, sometimes you're killed for being a follower of Jesus Christ. I looked at a video last week about being a, what does it mean to be a Christian in Syria right now? And to be a Christian in Syria right now, or really the past few years, means being willing on a daily basis to say, I'm willing to die for this stuff. Like, I, like it, it very well could happen. Like there could be men with guns, men with swords who will come into our home or the place that we're meeting to talk about Christ, and we are killed. Like it's a reality. And so all of the peripheral, the fluff and the stuff that makes up American church is just not there. And almost at the end of last week's message, if, if you haven't been able to track with that, if you weren't here, go listen to it online. It was like some of us thought like, well, man, what, what do we do? It seems like, like there's communist persecution in North Korea and China, and there's still vestiges of that in, in Vietnam. And then, man, if you go to, if you're raised in Burma, or Myanmar, and you hear the gospel from someone, and you say, I, it's true. Like, I don't know how to explain why it's true, but I know here that it's true. And you decide to convert and become a follower of Jesus like you could very well be killed. Same thing in the Middle East. Same thing in many places in Africa to where there are Muslim militias that go around in trucks with guns. Filled with men with guns and machetes hunting down Christians like it's actually real. Like, it's not just on the screen, it's real. That is reality. And some of us at the end of last week were like, well, man, we've got, like, that's not our life. Like, even if we were in that situation, like, somebody would be called in because we are American citizens, right? Like, if we were caught in that situation and we couldn't get to the embassy, like, somehow, somewhere, word would get out, it would hit Facebook, it would hit Twitter, and it'd be like, Christian group from Virginia, mission trip. Africa, missing, believed to be hunted by Muslim militias. And they go into where we were and all they find is like burned buildings and people who are dead and nobody knows and we're on the run. Like something would be done. But you see, here's the difference that most of us realize at the end of last week. That intervention, whether it's the Navy SEALs, whether it's special ops, whether it's Marine Corps, whether it's an angry American mom, that type of intervention will not be possible for the people that are from there. And if you were with us last week, sometimes when you talk about persecution and all that's going on in the world, there can be a little seed of defeat that can come into our minds to say, well, man, it seems like stuff is so, so crazy bad in the world. Like, like, who's really winning? For those of you that are readers, and I don't know if you've realized it yet, that um, 
that I enjoy reading, I would encourage you, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're just kind of here as your first time in church in a while or first time ever, or really glad you're here, right, church? Like, we're really excited. Um, this is actually a book called God is Red, and it's from a Chinese journalist who's not actually a Christian. And here's the, the subtitle, The Secret Story of How Christianity Survived and Flourished in Communist China. Published here recently is an incredible, incredible look at how since the 1950s, Christianity has been basically illegal in China. The government tried to stamp it out. But in spite of the government's best efforts in China today, the church is growing incredibly. To where many people who track demographics say that it's very well possible within the next few decades that they will have more Christians there than anywhere else in the world. Because if you studied history, usually Christianity is viewed as like something that's really, uh, that's, that's European, that's white. But the rate, the rate of growth in the Chinese church is changing all that. And you realize the only place in the world that the church is stagnant is in Canada, North America, and Western Europe. Really, you could say the seedbed for, for the church for a long, long time. And here's a, another incredible book here. It's A Revolution in World Missions. Um, this is an incredible book that talks about, it's from the group called Gospel, The Gospel for Asia. And it talks about how God is using persecution in Asia to bring many people to faith in Jesus Christ. So I want us to land and start right where we left off last week and that God is not dead. God is not asleep. God is not on the ropes, for those of you that track with boxing metaphors. Like the persecution, whether it's from communist nations or Muslim nations or Buddhist and Hindu nationalists, like that has God not one bit concerned because God is so sovereign and so powerful that we see in the Bible how he used even evil kings to bring about incredible things. And today God is using persecution. And I believe one of the greatest things that God is doing specifically in the Muslim world is he is allowing the flower of Islam to come into full bloom that for hundreds of years it wouldn't, wasn't possible because there wasn't the funding. But now there is through oil and all sorts of different ways. That the people of the Islamic world are seeing the full bloom of Islam and many are becoming disillusioned. There was an article that I read this past week about Lutheran churches in Germany who are receiving some of these Syrian refugees are becoming filled with people who are saying, we are disillusioned by Islam. And are open in Germany, in a Lutheran church. Like that's, like that's as far non, let's connect with other cultures as you can possibly get. So the takeaway from last week's message for all of us should not be that we get worried and scared and concerned. It's that we go back to the word of God and say, God, what would you have me to think how would you have me to live in this world? Because here's the thing, and we'll talk about this in the weeks and months to come. The fact that we are Americans gives us an incredible opportunity to be involved in what God is doing around the world by being involved here in what he's doing. So let's go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, you say, Jeff, what are, what are we going to do? How are we going to tie all of this together? Because the title of today's message is Stewardship and the Call for Worldwide Missions. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at possibly what Bible scholars say 
is Jesus' hardest, most confusing, most strange parable that he ever told in the Bible. But if we read the words of Jesus closely, he's going to show us how we should view stuff and how we should view people and possessions. And by the way, if you've never read the parables of Jesus, it is awesome because there's such a hook there. Luke chapter 16, let me kind of give you the main idea what we're going for. The main idea here is that obedience in the little things prepares us for the big things. And here's the story that Jesus lays out there in verse number one, Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So here's, here's the thing. Rich man, he's the big boss. He has a, like a financial planner manager. And this manager was doing some things that were a wee bit shady. I had been here about a year. And there was a guy, um, and I think he had family here. He lived in another state. And he just said, hey, man, we, I'm just in to visit. I want to let you know, man, I'm so excited. Like, people are being saved here. I didn't know people could, like, it's, it's just cool to see. What, I didn't know people got saved at Rocky Mountain Baptist Church. But it's been awesome to see what happened this past year. And I'll just let you know, I do books. I do, I do finances. And if you need somebody to cook the books for you at Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, you just call me. And I was like, I don't think that would be good. Right? Like, he's that guy. So here's the thing. The boss has assets, and this manager wastes the possessions. This word wasting is the same word that's used for the prodigal son back just one chapter in Luke 15, where it says that he went and he wasted his possessions. So here's what happened in verse 2. The rich man, the boss, calls the manager into him and says, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. So basically what happens is that the shady manager gets canned. Like he, gives, he gets a pink slip, and it's not just pink, it's like hot pink. Like it's really pink, and the, and the, and the, the boss just says, you're done. Like you're no longer employed by me. And then, imagine if you're the shady manager, verse 3, it all hits home. He begins to say to himself, and by the way, whenever you see a person talking to themselves in the Bible, it's not a good thing because what it means is that they're not consulting with God. In verse number three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Basically what he's saying is that the only two options for me at this point are is incredible manual labor that I'm just not able to do. And on the other hand, there's begging that I'm ashamed to do. So what does Slim Shady do? By the way, for those of you who are in business, you will smile at this, if not nod, be like, I see what's going on, check it out. He says in verse four, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down, I love this, quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So here's what happened. The shady manager knew he was about to be done away with and he begins to forgive debts that people owed his boss. Now, imagine what's going on here. You're the boss. And people come to your office 
Excuse me, sir, dude, boss man. I know I owed you like 20000 for that car. You're so awesome. You said, I mean, you're, you told your manager, apparently because your manager told me, you'd cut it down to twelve. How about a hug? And here's the rich man. And by the way, he had money, so he wants to do well and have good relations and win friends and influence people. Imagine, and that person goes out, he's like, what in the world? And another person comes in, and they're like, excuse me, sir, boss. Remember that four-wheeler I bought? My wife told me I didn't need it, but what does she know? And, uh, and I bought it for like 18000 It's a nice four-wheeler. And you cut it down to nine? That's amazing. Thank you. And so guess what happened? The manager, by forgiving the debts, puts his boss in an impossible situation, and the boss is tracking. So notice what he says. Verse 8, the master of the boss commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, his smartness with money, but was not ethical. And notice what Jesus says. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. We'll actually come back to that in just a few moments, but do you notice how the boss does not respond? Like the boss does not respond like the big boss in the Bruce Lee movie. He doesn't respond like Don Corleone that says, you'll be swimming with the fishes. I mean, he doesn't call in his henchman and pull out his, his cigar cutter and pull out a finger and say, we're gonna start taking loans off of you. He doesn't do any of that. What he does is he says, you know what, it's almost like, it's almost like those of you um, that are adults but not actually and you still enjoy practical jokes. When you pull one over or when you get one pulled over on you and it's like, I mean, it's not like they burn your house down, but it's something really, really good and you have to just basically say, you know what, you got me. This is a you got me moment and what he does, he commends him. It's like, you know what? I can't go back on the debt because they're gonna think that I'm a jerk. And not only that, you were still my manager, so you actually did it based on my authority, even though I didn't know you were gonna do that. And here's the boss who wants to be known as a good man, so he had to suffer financial loss because of the shady steward. Tell me that's a little strange coming from the lips of Jesus. Agree? Because he just told the story about somebody who's completely dishonest. And Jesus gives the twist. He says there in verse number eight, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Here's Jesus giving the point of the story. He's saying, you guys who follow me, you're saved and your life is not all about stuff here. Like your life is not all about donkeys and camels and horses and houses and wheat. To us, our life is not all about degrees and four-wheelers and cars and trucks and nice clothes and nice places to eat and places to go on vacation. Like Jesus is saying, that's not what life is completely about at all. But what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, look at how shrewd, look at how slick, look at how crafty this guy was, even though he was dishonest. And then Jesus says there in verse number nine, one of the most confusing verses in Jesus's parables. He says, and I tell you, 
Now, Jesus had already told them, but he's really going to tell them. By the way, whenever you see when Jesus says, and I tell you, it is very, very important. It's kind of like when you've been told something, but then your mom or dad says, now let me tell you. Jesus is saying, I just told you a story, and now let me tell you. So this is so important. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And here's the purpose. So that when it, wealth, fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What in the world is going on? Jesus is saying, you know what, guys? The sons of this age, the only thing that really matters ultimately is being financially set. That's it. And by the way, that's how we know if we have our priorities in order, if being financially set takes the top rung of the ladder. If that is at the apex of our value system, we don't have a biblical value system. And what Jesus is saying is that unsaved people are usually better at being shrewd with money because money is all that they ultimately care about. Or if they don't care about money, they care about the experiences that money can give. Some people say, well, Jeff, I don't care about having a big bank account. I just want to go cool places and do cool stuff. It's the same thing once you filter it through. What Jesus is saying in verse 9 when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth is this. Jesus is saying that God gives you money to leverage and use for your greatest goal, which is people getting saved and going to heaven for the glory of God. This is the boom that was just lowered. Like when Jesus says, and I tell you, like it is the boom that is absolutely lowered. And what Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying that we can bribe people into heaven. Like he's not saying that we can buy people into heaven. What Jesus is saying is that we should be minus the dishonesty, minus the shadiness, thinkers, are we tracking? Like detailed, laser-pointed thinkers, unlike lost people, who when they get a paycheck, it's theirs. Like it's completely theirs. The only things that factor is, what can this get for me? Because obviously my life is my life, my money is my money, is my girlfriend, my wife. God never even shows up in the thinking pattern. Jesus is saying, that's not you. A person who thinks that way is a person who will be consumed by money. So Jesus is saying, guys, what we should do is to look at how, I mean, if you've ever known a penny pincher, I mean, they will pinch, they will pinch and pinch and pinch until the president that's on the coin's nose begins to bleed. Like, they, they, they're that cheap. I mean, people that are just like, how did you get money out of that? They can just like get, I mean, it's amazing how some people can sniff out money. Like the guy's got a full-time job, he sees the, you know, penny fall underneath the, the, the Coke machine and he's down there, hold on, honey, almost got it. Like it's that, Jesus is saying, the lost world is all about accumulation of cool stuff, cool experiences, and a big bank account. That's all that matters. There may be different things that it produces, but at the end of the day, it's security that comes from stuff. Security that comes from stuff. And Jesus says, look at that crowd. Study them. See how they invest wisely. See many times how they invest. Well, it makes money, but it's not dishonest. And you use what you have 
don't be dishonest, but use it for the goal for which you were born. And the goal for which we were all born is the glory of God. And God is most glorified by people coming to faith in him. You see, for a Christian, our greatest goal in life is not retirement. I lived in Florida for about six years, and I saw people, and they would move there from all over the place. And they had worked hard. You know, many, many had sold a home another place, and they had moved down to Florida. And, and then, then they would just say, well, I, this is here. Like, I've lived for this. And then you see people without God, but people who had lived with the idol of retirement. And there was so much disillusionment, so much bitterness, so much complaining because they were looking for something to satisfy that could not satisfy. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, guys, the point of your life, the goal of your life is not retirement because you're going to live past retirement. We track him? Like when you're saved, you pass through death, but then there's everlasting life. And the people that we know who don't come to Jesus, there's everlasting death, separation from God, and a place called hell. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, use what you have for eternity. You see, now, what, what does it mean there in verse, in verse 9 when it says that these friends will receive you into the eternal dwellings? What's going on here is how do these friends thank you in eternity? In eternity, it's because us being smart, and by being smart, I mean being biblical, viewing our families, our paychecks, our rides, our guns, our clothes, our food, everything that we've been entrusted with, we view that with a missional perspective. And here's the point. It is obeying God with possessions that leads to people getting saved. That's what the Bible's saying here. It is obeying God with your money, and God uses your faithfulness with your possessions that brings about somebody getting saved. You know, the amazing thing about it is that we live in a culture that is fueled by entertainment. I mean, there is more stuff to be entertained, right? And, like, and, and you parents, right, the students come in, they say, I'm bored. You know what my mom usually would say? She would say, well, I've got a lot of chores for you to do to be on board. I mean, it's just like there's so much stuff to do around the house and, and all around. And one of the things that I encountered early on, I was, I was 23 years old, and I never expected this to happen, that a church called me to be the pastor. I went and preached for them. They're like, well, can you be our pastor? I was like, let me think about it. No. I mean, I'm 23. You know, I was about to graduate college, and then, then they came back and said, well, we, we'd really like you to pray about that. I said, well, maybe I should pray about that, because praying, you know, like the Bible says, you should do that. It's kind of a good thing. And so long story short, God brought me there, and it was a church that, that, had, that had really suffered for some years. And, and, and I went there and just said, Lord, let's just see what, you, see what you do. And I would begin to share the gospel, especially with a lot of the young guys who are around my age. And it was just kind of like, you know when somebody's nodding their head, but they're basically saying, please, for the love of donut, shut up. Like, it's that, it's that type of, like, they're trying to be nice, but they're just saying, please stop. You know what I found out early on is it was some of these guys that didn't care anything about the Lord, and I just throw it in and say, man, I, it was awesome. I just opened up my dirt bike the other day. It was amazing. I mean, right through, they're like, you ride dirt bikes? I'm like, yeah, man. Like, that's, that's me who you hear through town in Iron City, Georgia. And we begin to talk about that. 
And they were like, oh, and, and it's something to do with hunting or farming. And I would say, yeah, we, it was awesome when my friends farm. I brought my Jeep. You have a Jeep? Yeah, it was awesome. I had to get pulled out. That's how bogged down we got. And they're like, dude, what time is church? It was like I found out early on that God can use how we are wired, the things that we enjoy, that those things that we enjoy can be used in a missional way. We tracking to where, what we, and here's the thing. If you're a musician, God can use that. If you're not a musician, don't ask to sing. I mean, whatever it may be that you enjoy doing, whether it's athletics or building things or, or counseling with people, when people find that you have other interests, when you're using the stuff that God gave you, the, quote, unrighteous wealth, Jesus is saying it's just stuff. There's nothing righteous about it, just the stuff. And we use that in a wise way. Often what many of you guys have found out is that that breaks down walls with people because they see that you're a real person. They see that they have something in common with you. Well, how do we actually go about being faithful and obeying God with what we have? Notice how Jesus tracks this in verses 10 through 12. This is so amazing. Jesus says... This is very un-American. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And notice what Jesus says is much and little. Verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What Jesus is going for here is he's saying that God has given us little things. He's given us money. Some more than others. But isn't it interesting how Jesus says that the stuff that we have been given, the possessions or the money to buy the possessions, he said that is of little account. And God, notice, he says, verse 11, if you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? What he's going for here is he's saying that God has given us our possessions as a test. And if we say, God, you've given, us, you've given me my possessions, I want to use that for you, then he's saying that Jesus will give us something that's truly of worth, which is himself. So how, how am I faithful in following God with what I have been given? How am I faithful in obeying God with my money and my time? Well, one way would be to regularly meet with your faith family for prayer, Bible study, and corporate worship. And something that I'm going to ask you guys to consider, and you don't have to be a member of Rocky Mount Baptist Church to consider this, is beginning last summer, I was very moved by the Lord that we need to have prayer, not as just something that is done on the side, but prayer needs to become the center focus of our church. So what we've done on Wednesday nights is um, we're going to gather in a circle, we're going to talk about prayer, and then we're going to break into small groups and pray that God's Spirit would move. That's it. Because I don't know about you, this is just a little self-confession. I'm a doer. I'm a list person. I like to get things done. And often when it comes to ministry, I think about I need to make more calls 
There are some people that I need to text, make more visits, and we work hard, and so many of you do an incredible job at reaching out to people. It's like over the course of the summer, the Lord said, you know what, Jeff, it's not about the calls you can make. It's not about the people you can share the gospel with. It's about this is my church. It's my spirit. These are my people. And so I'm going to ask you as, as a church family to consider, and I know many of you work late to where you wouldn't even be able to come to the meeting, but on Wednesday nights, uh, from now on out, 7 o'clock, I'm going to ask you, let's get back to the book, Be New Testament Christians, to consider coming out and praying with us. Every single one of us has needs. Every single one of us knows people who need God. They're lost. There's kid problems, marriage problems. And I'm asking you that we would go forward together and make prayer a priority. For those of you who sing in choir and you're already here, to those of you that you haven't been able to come on a Wednesday night yet, let's fall before our faces and ask God to do something great. There's also faithfulness in giving, faithfulness in tithing. That's what the Bible says. You know, for some, we say, well, I want to be involved in something big. I want to be involved in something awesome. I want to go on a mission trip overseas to tell people about Jesus who've never heard. But if we're not sharing the gospel with our people who are close, then it really kind of makes little sense if we go all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, across the Mariana Trench and the Pacific Ocean, spend thousands of dollars on a plane ticket to go obey Jesus there when we won't obey Jesus across the street here. We okay? What we're asking going forward in 2016 is that God would give us as a church family a faithfulness in sharing the gospel, a faithfulness in how we give. Faithfulness in sharing the gospel. You know, so many of us, we want to be part of the big play. For those of you who track with sports, ESPN, top 10 plays. And I've seen, and I've done it myself when you're watching a football game. And by the way, I'm not talking football other than this until next September because you know how the Cowboys season turned out. And it's just like it's that perfect throw and he's burned, the, he's burned uh, the defense and it just goes out and drops the ball. And for those of you who are like me, you, you get up off your seat like, what are you doing? And we say, what do we say? I could have caught that. <laughs> like, like me, I could have caught that. And it's really funny, especially if you've ever been to a live game before. And by the way, if you've ever been to a football game, except for high school, I mean, like, everybody's bombed by the, by the halftime anyway, you know, and just screaming beer and Cheetos are going out their mouth. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an interesting cultural event, right? And just screaming, like, how could you do it? My grandma could have made that play. Here's something I, and I want you to check with, all right? It's possible that you and I, if we've been put in that situation, could have actually received the ball. But you see, we've not taken the steps to be in the circumstance to catch the ball. Let me say that again. We possibly could have caught it, but because we didn't put in the work and the time, the discipline to be there to catch the ball, the ball would not be caught by us. And what Jesus is saying is in order to do big things, you've got to be faithful in little things. In other words, there's no fast-tracking it with God. There's no three easy steps. There's no spiritual steroid that you can get from somebody on the street and, and kind of go in your car late at night and shoot up and be like Arnold the next day. Like, spiritually, that doesn't work. 
The way God works is through the little things, and Jesus identifies the little things as money. So according to Jesus, how we view and how we give to missions, the local church, whatever it may be, with our money is the lever that either stops the blessing of God on our life or unleashes it. You say, now, Jeff, it seems like when we talk through the Gospels, it seems like you always talk about money. Dude, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is, especially if you have a problem with greed, it is incredibly annoying. Like, shut my Bible, listen to the Barney theme song, get it out of my head. Annoying because of how often Jesus comes again and again and again and again to the subject of money. And we have to step back and say, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus set the stage in Luke 16 to the point that spiritual health and spiritual stagnation depend upon our faithfulness to God with our stuff? It's because Jesus has said that God has given us stuff as a test, and that is what makes the difference. If you were to flip back in Luke chapter 12, Jesus even tells the parable of a rich fool. And the guy was just, I mean, was going gangbusters. The guy was, I mean, absolutely making money hand over fist to the point he didn't have a place to put it. I mean, it was like even more so when springtime comes around and people have spring cleaning sales. And we don't have any junk at our house, so what we do is we go pay people for their junk and bring it in our house. And I love junk, man. Like from flea markets to, I mean, to, to, to yard sales, garage sales. I remember my brother, he, and he can't, he can't stand clutter, so we, we forced him to go to the flea market every year. And he was walking, he's like, I can't believe that one guy wanted me to spend like two bucks for a little matchbox car. And those of you who have a PhD in flea marketology know that that is heresy. And there's a lady who walked by, well, it could have been a collectible. She just walks on, right? Like, you don't talk that way at the flea market. You just don't. And in Luke 16, you've got, or excuse me, Luke 12, you've got this guy, man, he's, he's done so well. He's got stuff upon stuff. And you know what he does? He says, I know what, I know what I'll do. I will build, wait for it, a bigger barn. And you know what everybody else saw that? They're like, dude, I, I mean, we know, like, we don't, we don't know what the guy makes, but we know he's, he's doing really well. And he's got all this excess stuff. What's he gonna do? Well, he's gonna do something and it's not even because he's trying to show off, but he's going to spend more stuff or accumulate more stuff for whom? Himself. And I mean, Fortune 500 would be like, front page cover. I mean, the economist like, sir, can we have an interview? But you know what Jesus says? He says, God says to the man, you fool, which means you absolute, complete fool. French fries are finished. Jesus is saying that everything that people thought about this guy was completely, completely wrong. And notice how Jesus sums it up there in the last two verses. In verse 12, he says again, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Wait, hold on. I thought my money was mine. Do you see how, do you see how smart Jesus is here? Let's read it again. And if you have not been faithful, and by the way, the way that we're faithful with the stuff that God 
gives us is to do with the stuff as God tells us to do. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, well, whose is it? It's God's. You will not, who will give you that which is your own? The one thing that we have that we will be able to carry through death, the eternal dwellings, is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Jesus said that it is, it's, it's more, it's possible for, what, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man gets saved? And by the way, every single one of us in here is rich by biblical standards. You see, what he's saying is that stuff, wealth, whether you make 15,000 or 250,000, Jesus is saying because we are sinners, because we're naturally selfish, that stuff is so seductive that we will be so concerned with what is not even ours, but we call it ours, that we'll never come to the point where we get something that's actually ours, which is a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And finally, in verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here's the kicker. You cannot serve what? God and money. The word mammon there is from the Aramaic that Jesus most often spoke in. Now, for those of you that have gone on a flight before, you know, it's really interesting going through TSA. Uh, one thing that you'll notice about TSA is they do not respond to knock-knock jokes. Don't try it. Went on a flight uh, a while back, and, and they actually pulled me to the side, and uh, they swabbed my hands. And I said, sir, what is the swabbing for? And this guy, no smile at all, to check for residue of explosives. And I thought it, but I didn't say it. And I want to just say, well, praise Jesus for good soap. <laughs> Honey, I'm in, I'm in gate C4. You know, <laughs> Thought it, but didn't do it. And one of the things that I noticed, when, when you check in for a flight, have you, ever, you ever noticed this? That when you check in for a flight, there are certain things that you cannot bring through to bring on the plane with you. There's a flight several years ago, went out to California, on the, flight, the, the land of the fruits and the nuts, and, um, and I have great friends from California, that's not derogatory, it's just true. Um, and we're out there, and he, and he got married, this great girl, and, uh, and we were coming, coming back, and I'd gone to the beach with my brother and another buddy, and we, they're just like all these awesome rocks, and I'm very easily entertained. Some of you may be able to identify, some not. Well, I had this awesome rock. It looked like a dinosaur egg, man, from Jurassic Park. I was like, I am bringing this sucker back. Like, it's going to be awesome. So I, I had this, this rock, and I tried to check it through there at the San Francisco airport. Did not go over well. And they, I mean, you, you know, the guy is like, I hate my life. And he pulls out the rock from the bag and he says, what is this? And I wasn't sure if he wanted me to answer it or not. Because I'm like, if you've never seen a rock, I need to be working TSA. Like this needs to be a different relationship. And he said, sir, I'm sorry, we're not going to, we cannot allow you to bring this on the plane. And I said, well, well, why not? No joke. He said, because you could use it as a bludgeon to smash out one of the windows when you get up to 30,000 feet. I was like, and you're not letting me get on the flight? Because they wouldn't let you take it on. The point is that you can't take on but a certain amount, certain types of things on any flight. 
What Jesus is saying is there's going to be a flight. Everybody's going to walk through it. The stuff that we've been given is a gift from God to be used for him as he tells us to use it. And when we do that, God's blessing will be amazing. He'll provide. He'll take care. But there's going to be a point to where everything that we have that's not Jesus, and we come to that check-in, sir, you can't bring that. Sorry, ma'am, that, that, that can't go. The only thing that gets through is what is ours, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ.